how is it possible then that people say church is boring? Uh, maybe because we've taken the greatest and most enriching, enlightening message ever revealed, which is God himself, and instead we've inserted the most yawn-worthy content, which is ourselves. listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. You're listening to Doxology, a sermon series through seven essential psalms. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Blaise Pascal observed that the people who have the greatest influence are not necessarily those who uh, write the laws who actually shape the hearts and the minds of a generation. It's not those who write the laws, but those who write the songs. Uh, Plato observed that uh, musical training is a more potent instrument than any other because rhythm and harmony find their way into the inward places of the soul where they mightily fasten. I've looked at history and I found that whenever there's a revolution, there seems to be, in accompanying that revolution, there's music from the French or American revolutions of the 18th century to even the Arab Spring in the 2010s. You find a unifying and kind of a permeating influence of music. Now, here we are gathering together each and every week on Sundays, and as a church community we know as Shoreline, we come together and we, we read God's Word, we study God's Word, we sing God's Word, And as we sing songs, we are singing words that capture the essence of the gospel. These are songs that we seek to sing that exalt God and give him glory and bring honor to him. And songs that remind us, not that we're necessarily singing to ourselves, but we're reminding ourselves as we sing that, oh, wait, uh, he is good to us in Christ. And, And usually when we leave on Sunday mornings, chances are you're not leaving and singing or humming or meditating on the words of my sermon. It's not like you're gonna meditate on certain sentences I said, but you absolutely, all of us, many of us, are gonna be humming along and singing the tunes of the songs that we were singing in our time of worship. And so that means that the task of leading worship in a, in a church gathering, in a Christian gathering, is so critical. But what happens if the worship leader, the one who is tasked with guiding God's people into praise and honor and glory, uh, what if that worship leader is unable to lead? What if something happens to that worship leader that prevents he or she from being with God's people or being in God's house uh, declaring his praises? Or worse, what if the worship leader was able to come into the gathering, but they personally lost interest in God and they no longer had a zeal to sing or to glorify uh, or to enjoy God? What if the task of organizing and leading and serving God's people became a burden and not a blessing? Well, those questions set the tone for what we're gonna be studying today, what we call the 84th Psalm. Today's our seventh week in a nine-week series called Doxology. And what we're doing is we're studying eight essential Psalms. There's 150, lots of ground to cover. How do you select just eight out of these incredible hymn book, we could call it, the hymn book of Israel. Uh, And we've already learned in these last few weeks that the Psalms are a collection of poems, they're a collection of writings, and they were intended to be put to music. They're not just to be read only, they're to be sung. And when we kick this series off, we learned that there's a variety of songwriters 
that contributed to what we call the book of Psalms. There's a bunch. Uh, And so on the screen, just a few of them, we realize that Solomon wrote a few of the Psalms. Moses wrote at least one. It's probably the oldest one, Psalm 90. There's about 50 orphan psalms. We call them orphan psalms because they don't have any, any, any title or any uh, author's name attached to them. But then there's another group uh, which are a little bit lesser known. There's Asaph who wrote many psalms. There's Ethan. There's, of course, some guy named He-Man, not the one you're thinking of, but there's He-Man. And then there's a group of songwriters, a collective, if you would, known simply as the Sons of Korah. And I think sometimes who is singing the lyric makes all the difference. Many of you know uh, Whitney's song, I Will Always Love You. You know that song and you might even start singing it in your head, not out loud, but you might start singing it in your head because you recount how Whitney sang that and killed it. But did you know Dolly Parton was the original writer? She was the original author of that song. Interesting. Uh, So looking at the notes at the top of Psalm 84, we notice above verse 1, it says, to the choir master, according to the Giddeth. We don't really know uh, specifically why that's there, and it's not really important. But then it says, a psalm of the sons of Korah. This is not David. David wrote 73 of 150. This is a different group known as the sons of Korah. Now, Just to kind of give us some Bible history, in the book of Numbers, there was a gentleman by the name of Korah that these guys are the sons of or the descendants of. And Korah was kind of with Moses, and in this moment, he incites a group of men to lead a group of 250 men against Moses and against Aaron uh, with the priesthood. And so Moses basically gathers Korah. And he gathers the others that were with him in this rebellion. And he gets them together, and he has them stand together and begin to burn incense. And then suddenly what happens is the ground opens up, this big sinkhole, so to speak, and it swallows up these rebellious men. The 250 who were rebelling with them see what happens. They begin to panic, and they flee, and the Lord consumes them with fire. Needless to say, the rest of Israel paid great attention uh, that day. And so Korah's descendants, or actually, more specifically, his actual sons, were gripped with the power of this moment, and they were also, the Bible says, spared. So Korah died, but his actual sons were spared. And then seven successive generations later, the prophet Samuel arises on the scene, and he's actually from the line of Korah. So the Korahites, if you would, had a very special place in Israel. They were the doorkeepers. They were the custodians of the tabernacle and of the uh, eventual temple. So when we say the sons of Korah, we're saying the descendants of those who were in the lineage of Korah who led this big rebellion. The ground opens up. He is consumed uh, by God through judgment. And I wonder, and this is eisegesis, meaning the text doesn't say this, the Bible doesn't say this, but I just wonder... We have to be careful what we wonder, but I just wonder if they knew their ancestry and thought, man, it's awful what happened to our, our, our father, our grandfather, our ancestor, Korah, and there may have been a special weight of honor to the Lord's glory, to his presence, and to his power because of Korah. The sons of Korah's songs specifically speak to desiring for and longing for and appreciating God and his presence. In fact, some of the most beloved lyrics of their 11 songs 
uh, are ones that we're familiar with. Here's a few, Psalm 42, verse 1. We know this, as the deer pants for flowing streams or for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. That was the sons of Korah. Uh, Later in verse 11, that song for the anxious and depressed, they said, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Kind of talking to yourself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It was the sons of Korah who wrote the the great Reformation psalm, Psalm 46, where they said, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way. And notice this, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. One can't help but wonder if they're singing with a little bit of recollection and sobriety about their ancestor Korah and his irreverence for the things of the Lord. Maybe that's what prompted them to write Psalm 84, what Charles Spurgeon called the pearl of the Psalms. Spurgeon said, and Psalm 23 is the most known, and Psalm 51 is maybe the most penitent, but Psalm 84 is the sweetest, and I like that. Psalm 84 takes us to one of the most prominent features in ancient Jewish life, the pilgrimage to the tabernacle or the temple. And in the psalm today, we're going to see a theme of corporate worship. We're going to see God's presence and God's goodness towards those who trust him. And we looked at categories. Last week, we looked at an imprecatory psalm, a psalm against one's enemies. This is actually simply a psalm of praise. Not all the psalms are psalms of praise, but this is one. A psalm where the songwriter is just giving God glory for one of his attributes. So particularly, the attribute he's thankful for is the presence of God, that he has made God his dwelling place. And so this idea of God's house is throughout the song. In fact, if we were to title the sermon today, we would call it a song for worship leaders because this is really a worship leader who seems to be writing this. So if we're going to break up this psalm and outline it in, in like a song is in verse and chorus, here's how we would do it. Here's our outline for today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 and see the excellence of God's house. God's house is excellent. Then the expedition to God's house in verses 5 through 8. And then we're going to see the experience in God's house in verses 9 through 12. So let's look real briefly at the, ex- the excellence of God's house, verse 1. Uh, he says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. How lovely. How lovely it is. Now, when he says lovely, go ahead and circle that word for me. The word lovely means a little more like beloved than it does lovely. Okay? It, it, he's not saying it's a lovely location. Like you would say, Oh, my wife remodeled our bedroom and it's lovely. It's not exactly like that. It means that it's a place he deeply and reverentially loves. He longs for it. In fact, he says in verse 2, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. A lot of scholars believe that maybe the songwriter most likely worked in the temple and was maybe disqualified from entering the temple for a season. Perhaps he was ceremonially unclean or had a situation arise where he was prohibited from, just for a time, having access to the temple. He goes on and he says, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. But notice in verse one, he says, how lovely is your dwelling place. It's a place that I long for. I'm, I'm fainting to get there. I just wanna be in your house. I wanna be in your dwelling place. That word dwelling place can also be translated tabernacle, and it's used frequently in the Bible about God's habitation among men. 
And now this is more than merely the specific sphere of local presence that existed in the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem. We know from the book of John chapter 1 that Jesus was the Word made flesh and He tabernacled among men, that He came and dwelt among them. Same idea, same concept. Jesus came and made His habitation among us. Jesus, born of a virgin, begotten of the Father, came to give us a picture of the Father, but to also be present among His people. Before Jesus came in human flesh, the temple or the tabernacle was that physical place that you would expect to meet with God, where you would be with him and you would see his presence. So here the psalmist is longing for the actual place that represents the presence of God. That's what he's longing for. Now, guys, we know this on this side of the cross from the book of Acts. Paul explains and Peter explained that God does not dwell in temples made with human hands. We know that. And so the temple in Jerusalem may have been the center of Jewish life, and even though the highest heaven can't contain God, he, in a sense, was pleased to make the temple at this time his dwelling place. So the psalmist is saying, I just want to make a pilgrimage to the temple. I just want to be with God. He wants it so bad that he says in verse 2, my soul longs and even faints for the courts. I don't know if you've wanted something so badly that you fainted. You feel, I'm about to pass out. I feel lightheaded if I don't have this particular thing. Uh, now, what he's saying here, this, this idea of my soul longs for the courts of the Lord, this is a, an actual um, figure of speech called metonymy. Uh, not that we're in English class right now, but I thought this was interesting. It's called metonymy, and it's when you, you use one word or phrase in place of another. So if you said to speak about the um, queen of England, if you said the crown, oh, the crown has ruled. You would, you're using the crown to speak about the queen. Does that make sense? If you said the White House loved that new law that was passed, the, the actual White House building doesn't like that, but the, the representative who's in the White House does. Does that make sense? You guys follow me? You guys don't seem awake today. I don't know if you're here, but <laughs> when I say lend me your ears, church, I'm not saying lend me your, your physical ears. I'm saying, you know, it's, it's kind of making this analogy. When we say Wall Street is in trouble, we're not saying the actual street, we're saying what represents. So that, when he says that uh, I'm longing for the courts of the Lord, he doesn't just want to walk inside the courts, oh man, I miss this place. He's saying those courts represent the presence of God. He's saying, I long for God. I want to meet with the living God. When can I go and meet with him? And then he says in verse 3 something interesting. He says, even, seems like a little random, he says, even the spare at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. It seems a little bit random. Like, why is he talking about birds? Well, this can be interpreted one of two ways. Either he's saying that he's jealous that some birds have gotten into the temple building and have made their home in the rafters somewhere and are perched and have 24-7 perpetual continual access to the temple. Sometimes birds do get into buildings. Went into Home Depot the other day, and there were birds that somehow flew in through the garden center, and they were kind of like, what do we do now? And they're just flying back and forth through the Home Depot, and the employees are, you know, watching them. And maybe that's what he's talking about, uh, but maybe not. He's either saying that or he's saying there's two particular birds who have found a home. So he mentions the sparrow and the swallow. In Scripture, sparrows are, are usually associated with loneliness, and swallows have been marked as being restless. So the lonely sparrow and the restless swallow 
have both settled into a home. And I believe the psalmist may be comparing these birds to himself. And he's saying the only place for God's people to be truly at home is in the presence of God. Now, obviously, I tend to lean toward the second interpretation, but good Bible uh, expositors believe in the first. But note with me the sheer longing and the insatiable desire of the songwriter to be with God. He loved the dwelling place of God. C.S. Lewis said a better word for this is appetite. Having hunger pangs that can't be quenched by anything other than God himself. Is that how you approached worship this morning? Is that how you approached the gathering of God's people? Now, I, I, nothing's going to keep me from meeting with the Lord and with his people. Spurgeon said this, he loved the house of God because he loved the God of the house. His heart and flesh cried out, not for the altar and the candlestick, but for his God. And then he wraps it up in this first section in verse 4, and he says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Maybe this was a nod to the priests and the custodians who actually resided there like the sons of Korah did. They had that advantage of perpetually leading uh, worship, of perpetually being in close contact with the handling of the administration of ministering to the Lord, kind of like worship leaders. And so he's saying, man, God's house is so excellent. I want to be there. I long to be there. Well, then he describes the expedition to God's house. Look at verses 5 through 8. Let's look at it together. He says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Another translation of verse 5 can be translated this way. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. I don't know why I like that particular translation. There's something about that that's just catchy. I don't know what it is. But what he's saying is the man who sets his heart on passing through this world, this temporal life, and looking towards eternity is the one who's blessed. The long, so the person whose strength is not in their circumstances, but in God, whose heart and mind is set on things above, they according to the psalmist, can kind of go through anything and still be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He's saying, we can go through anything because this is not our home. We're setting our hearts on something beyond this world. And then he says in verse 6, he says, as they go through the valley of Baha, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Do you like how I pronounce that? That's actually how you pronounce it, Baha. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, and Baha is a noun derived from a verb that means to weep. I don't know, do we have a picture of that, Michael? Yeah, awesome. So there's the actual valley. The word means to weep. It's known as the Valley of Lamentations, not a place I would necessarily buy real estate. You know, we have a lovely three-bedroom villa in the Valley of Weeping and Lamentation. Probably not going to go there. Uh, so the word here actually can be translated not just to wheat, but also balsam tree. And balsam trees grow in very arid places. So either way, this word means weeping, it means dry, or it means thirsty. In either case, what a great illustration. He's saying when we pass through the valley of weeping, uh, or the place where it's dry and weary, we take that and we turn it into a place of springs. Something that had a reputation of arid emptiness and the follower of God comes and turns that into a place of spring. Now, we know in Scripture that weeping may remain for a night, right? We know that, but rejoicing comes when? Rejoicing comes in the morning. 
And so that means we may be in a circumstance right now where there's a lot of weeping, there's mourning, there's difficulty, there's sorrow. We're asking those why questions and we're, we're in despair. And yet this is the night and we should know weeping remains for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We don't eliminate the weeping. That's important and that's necessary and that's a part of the human experience. Jesus wept. But we know that the joy comes in the morning, that there is yet a time of worship and gratitude. Uh, and so that psalm, by the way, weeping remains for the night, joy comes in the morning, that was Psalm 30, verse 5, which, by the way, was the song they sang when the temple was first dedicated. And so weeping, lamenting, uh, walking through a dry valley, and yet those whose eyes are set on heaven can turn even the sourest of scenarios into a place of refreshment. I wonder if our, the people in our lives look at us and see as we've walked through these valleys of Baha, I wonder if they see in our lives the suffering and yet we've been able to turn those trials into places of spring. How many of our unbelieving extended families or friendships don't yet believe and they look like a valley of lamentation? They look like a valley of weeping. No salvation, no hope, no life, no peace, just just barren wasteland. And yet what a great opportunity for us who are followers of God to walk through desert places and produce refreshment and thirst and even life. A lot of people don't know my testimony, but, but I personally was running from Christ, grew up in a Christian home, running from Christ, and found myself in that valley. I thought it was a valley of, of sin and transgression and excitement, I thought. I thought it was a place of refreshment. Uh, when I was at Georgia Southern University, the summer after I graduated, right before enrollment, uh, I was running away from the Lord and running towards the world and towards sin. And in that empty wilderness, it began to produce a thirst for something more. And just on a chance trip, my roommates had some friends or family in Naples, Florida. And so they were like, hey, we're driving from Savannah to Naples. Do you want to ride with us? So I jumped in the car, rode with them, and came to Bradenton and got dropped off. And it was like split screen. One minute we're listening to debauchery in the car and, and involved in this sinful wickedness. They drop me off, close the door. I walk into my grandparents' house. They're listening to worship music and they're reading the Bible, right? So I go from like, talk, talk about darkness to bright light, right? And so I walk in and there's my extended family, my mom, and their, their lives were so different, so bright. There was such depth. There was substance. And I realized, man, I, I didn't realize it until I saw the contrast. I'm dead. I am empty. I'm lost. And I realized it. And so some of you know that story. I got back to uh, the college, gave up my scholarship, gave up everything that didn't fit in my car, moved back down here. And uh, ultimately, the Lord pursued me, and I surrendered my life as he drew me to his son. And it was through my life-giving family's faith and joy that I came to Christ. Uh, and the rest is history. So never underestimate the power of prayer and presence and joy in your life that can make an impact in people who are in the valley of weeping. We can turn that into a place of springs. Now look at verse 7. Verse 7 is uh, interesting. Uh, verse 7, he says that they go from strength to strength and each one appears before God in Zion. So those who are longing for God's dwelling place, they go from strength to strength. They appear before God in Zion. In other words, their journey has a destination and it's Zion, the city of God. So the people of God aren't just walking aimlessly. Like, where are we going? Are we going anywhere? 
No, they go from strength to strength, strength for the next mile, and then when you get to that place, there's strength for the next bit of the journey. Now, I kind of like this idea of going from strength to strength, and this is in the scripture in a variety of different places with different concepts. So let me just give you a few verses to jot down. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, here it is, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So we are being made into his image and we live our sanctified life from glory to glory. There's another verse, John 1:16, speaking of Jesus, it says, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. So the, those who have received Christ, it doesn't mean all, meaning everyone in the world, but those who have received Christ, those who are saved and being sanctified, we have received the fullness of his grace and we continue to walk in grace upon grace. So isn't that cool? We go from strength to strength, from glory to glory, receiving grace upon grace. What does that mean? Those are just words. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means you find in one trial that there's grace for today. And so you have strength to trust God and to give him glory in your trial. So then you move on to the next difficulty and you go, oh, there's grace for this trial as well. And there's strength, and there's another opportunity to give God glory. And so you realize God's faithful to provide strength, to provide grace uh, for today for his glory until he brings us home to Zion, until we get to that destination. Now, some of us, and I'll admit it, me as well, look less like strength to strength, and we look more like minute to minute, right? Or hour to hour or breath to breath. Now, listen, don't cheapen the grace that God has provided for you. Go from strength to strength. And so the psalmist uh, finishes this line of psalm, and he says, O Lord, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. And we missed the first one, but here's the second, Selah. That's a pause, that's a break, where we kind of take a deep breath, and we consider what was just uh, uttered. Maybe there's a time for a harp solo, we don't know. But there's a moment of break, and we consider what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, hear my prayer. Give ear, turn your ear towards me. I wonder if that describes your life this morning of going from strength to strength, from glory to glory, and maybe passing through the dry and weeping valley. Some of us don't pass through the valley, we just camp out there. <laughs> uh, Winston Churchill said it this way, if you're going through hell, keep going, right? Don't, don't stay there, just keep going. Paul would write in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. So we're eagerly awaiting a savior from there. Our citizenship's not here on earth. So though we participate as citizens in the process that it means to be a citizen, our true citizenship is in heaven. And so we're simply pilgrims. We can use that word, right? We're pilgrims. We're passing through. We're exiles. We're citizens who've been displaced and we're awaiting the consummation where we'll be with the Lord and back home again one day soon. I don't know if that gets you excited, that gets me excited, and it reminds me, oh yeah, don't forget, I'm staying in a motel for the time being, but I'm not home. And so I'm not going to put up new curtains in the motel, and I'm not going to put signs and, and things up in the motel and make myself at home. I'm going to be home for a season here, but this isn't my true home. My true home is in heaven, and I can't wait uh, until I'm with the Lord. So we're on an ultimate expedition, like the psalmist, to the house of God, in an ultimate sense. Uh, well, what about the experience when we get there, the experience in God's house? Look at verse 9. 
Let's look at this section. He says, for a day, uh, I'm sorry, verse 9, behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. Look on the face of your anointed. Please circle that word anointed for me. That is the word Messiah. So what he's saying here is that there's a shield, and that shield is none other. The defender is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who will avenge his people. He'll provide for them. He'll protect them, and he'll represent them. Now, in a near fulfillment, that's speaking of the king of Israel, the anointed one. But in an ultimate fulfillment, that's, of course, none other than Jesus Christ. So the psalmist is praying that God would look with favor upon his anointed one, which we know from Psalm 2, that anointed one is also his son. And so we know that's, of course, Jesus. So he's saying, oh, God, behold the defender and look upon his face with favor. And then he says, as for us, here's what we should be thinking about. He says in verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. See, what he's saying here is he's saying, man, a day spent in God's courts is better than 1,000 elsewhere. One moment with God in his house changes everything. We know this as Christians, but the world doesn't understand this, that God is the ultimate reality. God's existence is primary. So God is absolutely sovereign, and God is independent. And to use a Latin theological phrase, God is sui generis, meaning that he is completely distinct and set apart and above his creation. And so that means everything else in creation is secondary. Everything else in creation is finite. It's created, and it's dependent upon him. God is completely independent. He's not dependent upon, upon creation. And so that means that we are dependent upon him. That means sin is the ultimate treasonous denial of needing God, and it actually is seeking independence from God to our own utter destruction. So what he's saying here is the God who is above all things, who is set apart and distinct and sovereign and good and righteous and and holy, that God, just a day with him, just to be with him for one day, is better than a thousand days outside. Just a moment with God's revelation, with God's decree, with God's assessment of my life, with God's design for my life, with God's favor upon my life, with God's work on my behalf, all of that in one moment can breathe life into dry bones. Just one moment with God can restore what's absolutely broken, it can redeem what's absolutely forsaken, it can even bring a dead body resurrected back to life. Just one moment with God is better than a thousand elsewhere. Why would I ever spend a thousand days seeking meaning when the source of all truth and all meaning and reality is found in God alone? I mean, I could spend a thousand days, that's about three years, in darkness and emptiness versus one day in his light, and man, that one day far outweighs the rest. I love this picture. Notice the comparison in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, I would rather, you play this with your kids, would you rather? We do this a lot. Would you rather live at the beach or live in the mountains? I'd rather live in the mountains near the beach. Okay, so we we play that game at home, would you rather? So here's a would you rather. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now think of what that means to be a doorkeeper. 
We, we actually have greeters here at Shoreline. Hopefully the door was held open for you this morning. If it wasn't, raise your hand. No, no. Uh, hopefully it was. You, you go into a restaurant. Sometimes they'll hold open the door for you. You go into certain establishments. They, they will be the doorkeeper, not the bouncer. That's not exactly what we're going. We don't have bouncers here <laughs> at Shoreline. But if your phone keeps going off, we'll see what happens. So the doorkeeper is the one who holds open the door. So listen, they're the first one in and they're the last one out. The doorkeeper has the lowly position of simply opening the door for others to enter in. He's not noticed much, but he notices everyone. The doorkeeper stands guard and protects the house from those who may enter with the wrong intent. Now, if those don't speak to worship leaders, then I don't know what does. He said, I'd rather be the person who ushers people into God's presence than to reside far away from him, but among those who are singing and reveling in their tents with no reality of God in their hearts or minds. You guys understand the analogy? I'd rather be someone of lowly stature who gets the privilege of bringing people into God's presence than to be out there singing these silly songs the world's singing. I'll let you bring the application there, but here's what Clark says. He says, who now prefers the worship of God to genteel, honorable, and noble company, to mirthful feasts, public entertainments, the stage, the oratorio, or the ball? Reader, and we could update that for modern times, but you get it. Reader, wouldst thou rather be in thy closet, wrestling in prayer, or reading the scriptures on thy knees, than be at any of the above places? How often hast thou sacrificed thy amusement and carnal delight and pleasures for the benefit of a pious heart-searching sermon? Let conscience speak, and it will tell thee. Wow. Those who dwell in the courts of the Lord have the privilege of ushering people into, bringing people into the presence of God. What a privilege. I'll take that over the secular comforts or applause any day of the week. Now, verse 11, he revisits this idea. He says that the Messiah is our shield. And then he says again in verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord Jehovah bestows favor and honor. I love this idea of the Lord himself being our sun and shield. That means that, that God is the source of blessing and he's our defense. He's both provision and he's protection. The wicked have their tents but we have a sun, we have a shield, we have grace and glory. So as our sun, S-U-N, God brings all the power, all the energy, and all the light that's needed. As our shield, God protects us from evil and from danger. And I love that analogy. I love that picture. And then he says in verse 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Uh, the word upright is often misunderstood. Some people think that to be upright means to be uptight. <laughs> that God is just out to ruin our enjoyment and produce a large batch of unhappy, like mad people who are at least compliant and miserable at the same time. On the contrary, that's just a total misunderstanding. Those who walk uprightly, he says, they receive the good things from the Father's hand. So when God gives us a prohibition, when God says no, when God is saying that's sin, it's not just because he wants to keep you from a good time. It's because that good time with it also has poison. That delicious bite is going to kill you. You're allergic to it. Don't eat it, right? So what we think is, oh, God's not fair. No, God's very fair. God is very just. God is holy. And he's trying to keep us from ultimately giving him true glory. Those who walk uprightly are blessed by the Father with every good and perfect gift and his grace and his kindness. 
I mean, goodness, how can you think that Christians don't have the best uh, things from the Lord? We have Chick-fil-A for goodness sake. I mean, goodness grace, if you ever doubted God's goodness to his people, chicken biscuit, okay? Come on. No, no good thing does he withhold. Here's what Romans says. Paul says this, having fun with it. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God didn't hold back his son, then why would he hold back anything else? We have all that we need, and he'll bless those who walk by faith. That's not a prosperity message, so just have enough faith, and then you'll get whatever you want, so just start praying what you want. That's not the idea. That's silly. The idea is that we trust him, we yield our lives to him, and when we're walking uprightly, even through difficulty, he's not going to withhold his glory, his goodness, and using our lives for uh, his purposes. So in comparison to the things of this world, a day in God's presence is, is just incomparable. Now, before we apply this psalm, I want to establish a little theology regarding the presence of God, because that's really the attribute that's being connected here. Um, This psalm speaks about longing to be with God or longing for the presence of God. I believe there's a misunderstanding or a lot of misunderstandings when we think about the presence of God. A lot of worship leaders today, a lot of Christians today just saying, like, I want to experience God's presence. People may have heard that. So I want to kind of uh, talk about this just for a minute. Uh, So we've already established the truth that heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. He doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. That's not where he's restricted. He's transcendent above and beyond his creation. He's set apart distinctly from it. I asked people this week on on an Instagram uh, story, was Jesus created? And some people said, yes, we believe Jesus was created. Okay, misunderstanding. Uh, Jesus, the Godhead is not a created being. He's apart from creation. He's transcendent. So though he's transcendent, he's also eminent. What does that mean? Well, David says in Psalm 139, you can't go anywhere to escape God's presence. You try to go up to the highest mountain, well, this will get away from God. No, he's there. You go down to the earth, there he is. You go down, he says, to the depths of hell, why would you do that? But there God is. You can't escape the presence of God. So God's presence fills the entire creation in a sort of universal way. That doesn't mean everything is God or that creation is God like the new spirituality cults erroneously believe. That's not the idea. See, God is present universally, but he's also present covenantally. Uh, Those who keep his commands or transgress his commands do not go beyond his sight. So covenantally, God is with his people. He's Yahweh, he's Emmanuel. You guys know what Emmanuel means? God with us. So from the very beginning of creation to the beginning of God calling Moses, and liberating the people of God to the announcement of the birth of Messiah, uh, even to the very consummation of the age. The message is and has always been God is with us. Uh, Chris, who led our worship this morning, read this from Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. We'll read it again. I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is the end, the consummation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The tabernacle is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God is covenantally always with his people. You guys follow me? So he's universally present. He's covenantally present. But there's another concept of God's presence. 
The scriptures do attest that God can sometimes intensify his presence in local areas, like in Exodus 3, the burning bush, God was speaking from the bush. Uh, With Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, God was speaking and meeting with Moses. Uh, When we go into the tabernacle and we see the most holy place and at the temple, uh, there's God's presence dwelling there. Uh, Remember, Moses pleaded with God, God, go with me. And he was with them with the pillar of fire and cloud. Psalm 105 commands us to seek his presence continually. What does that mean? Uh, Paul told the Corinthian church, someone may come into your gathering and hear the word of God and be cut to the heart, and they might say God is among you. What would make them say God is among God is present? So I want to address this idea of the presence of God in worship. Um, The verse that says God inhabits the praises of his people, that may actually be a misquote of Psalm 22.3. Here's what Psalm 22.3 actually says. I don't know if you have that. You don't have it. Psalm 22.3 says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Okay, we learned Psalm 22 a few weeks ago. Psalm 22 is not teaching that whenever you sing, God's manifest presence shows up. And if you stop singing or if you sing with the wrong attitude, okay, you just, you're singing with the wrong, you're like, I didn't like that guitar. So you start singing with the wrong attitude. Now God's presence leaves the building like Elvis left the building. Is that the idea? No, it means that he's already seated upon the praise. He is the object of worship and praise for Israel. He is enthroned on the praise of Israel. He is the object and worth and value of Israel. That's what it's meaning. It doesn't mean like we need to start singing, guys. So everybody lift up your voice because then God's presence will be conjured up. Okay, that's almost cultish if not uh, mystical, and that's weird. Uh, so God's presence is, is here among us today, uh, but his presence can be localized. So with that in mind, uh, I want to give two big points of application with the presence of God in worship, and here's what I want to do. Each one of these have three subpoints. So I want to give us what it looks like when we underemphasize God's presence and when we overemphasize God's presence. All right, you guys with me? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with dangers when we underemphasize God's presence. This is application. When we underemphasize God's presence, one thing that can happen is that we put information greater than transformation. If the psalmist here is only worried about just walking into the temple courts and gaining information, then why would he long for that and faint for that? You see, what happens is we can stop becoming interested in meeting with the living God, communing with his people, Hearing the Holy Spirit teach us through the revelation of God given to us in his holy word. And we just start depending on facts and figures and content. We just want to know the right answers to the questions rather than being right with God himself. It's a danger. John Piper said this, without the sovereign, life-giving, blindness-removing, heart-illumining, glory-revealing work of God's spirit, preaching doesn't happen and doesn't exist. Preaching is not a subspecies of rhetoric in the university. It's unique in the universe. Listen, church, can we just stop right now, stop the service? This is not Kiwanis Club. This is not Toastmasters where I'm working on giving speeches and hopefully you raise your glass. What do you think? Did I do a good job? That's not the idea that we're doing here at all. We want to not just sing nice religious songs. We want transformation, not just information. If we don't trust in the power of the Holy Spirit, to fulfill Isaiah 55, 11, which is the fact that God's word will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. If all I care about is just giving you facts and figures, I'll just send you an email and you guys can sleep in on Sunday morning. That's not the purpose of our gathering. It's transformation. 
And so that's a danger that we have to avoid when we just underemphasize God's presence. Secondly, here's another danger. We can begin to uh, rely on our own ingenuity rather than the sufficiency of Scripture. So our gatherings become where the success of man's wisdom is greater than the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, I would bet that almost every pastor, you never know nowadays, but almost every pastor would say, I believe in the authority of Scripture. But not every pastor in, his, uh, in their church's uh, practice believes in the sufficiency of Scripture. You guys know the difference? Like, Scripture's authoritative, but is it sufficient? Is it enough? Uh, that all Scripture's God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so here's what happens. If God is present in his people and his word is preached and it doesn't return void, then his words should be sufficient. But see, when we go, yeah, God's present, and we start making church about entrepreneurial endeavors, when we make it about business principles rather than the Bible, what happens inadvertently is we, we eliminate the power of the gospel, and we start looking for the power of persuasion. Listen, I'm not a professional. Pastors are not businessmen. We're men and women of God. You and I, we are men and women of the book. Right? right? That's what we're about. So we need to guard against abandoning the sufficiency of Scripture for novelty and just saying, well, we're not sure if God's here, so let's just try to make things happen in our own strength. The third thing that can be a danger, when we underemphasize the power of God and God's presence in our gatherings, our gatherings may become less about God and more about us. That's where self is greater than God. This is a trend in Christianity. I call it the selfie service, all right? You guys know what the selfie is, right? Everyone knows what a selfie is to our chagrin. Can we just eliminate that from our culture? Anyone for that? Can we just eliminate the selfie from culture? Uh, this is the idea where at church, we are the center of the sermon. We are the center of the worship set. We are the center of the church. It's about us. It's meeting my consumeristic needs. No wonder mainline Christianity is in free fall and public figures so to speak, are falling away. It's because we've made church about us, and when we don't like something, we leave. We leave the faith. Back in March of this year, there was a tourist from Hong Kong, and I shared this illustration recently, but there was a tourist from Hong Kong at the Grand Canyon, and uh, he walked up to the edge and fell off the edge of the Grand Canyon a thousand feet to his death. Horrible uh, situation that happened. A thousand feet to his death. Now, it might sound crazy, but he wasn't there to take a picture of the Grand Canyon. He was there to take a selfie of himself standing in front of the Grand Canyon, and when he did that, he got too close and fell off the edge to his death. It may sound crazy, but 250 people in the last six years have died by what's called death by selfie, where they get on the edge of a train or the edge of a cliff or the edge of a building, they go to turn, uh, make a selfie, and they fall, and they die. Now listen, in like manner, Rather than basking in the gospel of God, I think what we've done at church is sometimes we've turned the camera back to us. We've made ourself the purpose, ourself the center of the story. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, said this. He said, we see throughout the Bible that when someone in antiquity encountered the holy God, the experience is almost uniform. To a person, they began quaking in terror, trembling before the most high God. They were frightened, they were humbled, they were disintegrated, but they were certainly never bored. How is it possible then that people say church is boring? 
How is this possible, church? Uh, Maybe because we've taken the greatest and most enriching, enlightening message ever revealed, which is God himself, and instead we've inserted the most yawn-worthy content, which is ourselves. I don't know about you, I'm tired of talking about myself. I'm just tired of it. Is there no reverence, no awe, no sense like the early church had that God is to be feared and honored and worshiped and beheld and displayed and adorned? And when we come together as his people, we're not here just to sing empty, empty lyrics or to preach homilies but that glorify the crowd, but we're here to meet with the living God and to glorify Christ. You see, we can um, underemphasize the power and presence of a holy, omnipotent God of might and glory. We can underemphasize, and those are dangers. But there's also dangers on the flip side where we overemphasize God's presence. Let's take notes on this. Three things, three dangers where we overemphasize God's presence. First of all, when all we yearn for is God's presence, then our gatherings may be where subjective revelation is greater than gospel proclamation. Here's what I mean by that we, we're looking for something to happen. And so we want to see the miraculous, we want to see something extraordinary. And we think if God is present, there must be activity. So we start looking for something to be said. We look for a word. We look for a prophecy. We look for a vision. And we start saying, I'm going to come to church. There's got to be a word from the Lord today. There's going to be a word from the Lord. And the thing that no one ever talks about in Pentecostal or extreme charismatic circles is how easily people can be given to suggestion. Meaning all I'm looking for is a word from the Lord. And someone says, hey, brother, God gave me a vision for you and it involves Krispy Kreme donuts, right? I'm going to say, oh, Lord, were you speaking to me? Are you, are you showing something that I need to do as a, as a person who loves donuts? See, many believers will try to find an authoritative message in that vision rather than submitting their experiences to the authority of Scripture. They would say, God, give me a word, and yet they'll close their Bible where there's 66 books of words that God has clearly communicated, and they haven't even read them yet. So subjective revelation can, can exceed gospel proclamation, okay? The second danger, uh, and there's many more, but a second danger when we overemphasize God's presence is that we allow our senses to become greater than substance. I've heard people say, even here at Shoreline, man, God's presence is thick today. Or, oh, I could feel goosebumps. Or, man, that was anointed. I could sense his presence. And I understand the desire to give God glory, but we can easily allow our senses or our feelings to outweigh substance. In other words, we're looking for the feels more than the reals. Does that make sense? Whether people respond in a congregation or not, or raise their hands or clap along, that does not necessarily equate with God being glorified or God being there. We can even manufacture these things in the flesh. Listen, if we've gathered with the saints, we've proclaimed Christ, we've been faithful to give God glory, we've equipped the church, then God is pleased and God is present. Here's what Bob Coughlin, great worship leader, said. He said, whether we feel it or not, God is present when his word is faithfully preached, when his people meet in Jesus' name, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we sing, and we serve in his power. Lots of verses there. At those times and others, we can know that God is with us, empowering what we do. Listen, we need to guard against the temptation to believe that a feeling or an emotion equals or even trumps the gospel message. Be very very leery of that. But there's a third danger when we uh, overemphasize God's presence. We may be tempted because of those things to engineer an atmosphere or manufacture an atmosphere 
that is elevated above community. So the idea here would be that atmosphere is bigger than community. In other words, we create the lights, camera, and action on stage, complete with the fog lasers drama, for all the audience to behold and, and snap away with the appropriate filter, of course. And, and yet, the picture in the New Testament is not of a concert, it's of a family gathering. People come with their love offerings, they break bread together, they pray for one another, they meet publicly in large gatherings, and they meet in, e in each other's homes, like our community groups, shameless plug. They pray together, they fast together, they weep together, they advance the gospel together. So the, the corporate gathering looks more like a family reunion than a theater. You've all been to family reunions, right? You show up excited, Jim Gaffigan says, you show up excited for the family reunion, and then you leave going, I can't wait to get out of here. Hopefully you don't believe that about church, right? You can't wait to get there, and then you can't wait to leave. But the idea is that, man, there's just a variety of different people. Sometimes we rub each other wrong, but we're, we're ultimately sharpening one another. But listen, if we try to conjure up God's presence, then there can be a temptation to turn the lights down lower. Let's, uh, let's bring the team up. Let's start the synth. And let's, get the, let's set the mood. Let's build the long intro into everyone's favorite pop Christian song. Uh, oh, what are you doing? We're just creating the atmosphere. Uh, we aren't looking for the church to participate as much as spectate. I believe the church community is a beautiful, broken medley of redeemed sinners who raise a collective anthem with a ragged voice, as one song says. We've been plucked out of the mire and out of the fire, and we're called to come together not for a slick production that has it all together. Isn't that disingenuous anyway? Doesn't that reek of hypocrisy anyway? Oh, everything's perfect at church. Everything's seamless. Everything is totally together. Does that describe your life today? You guys, it doesn't at all. I mean, we're not the London Symphony Orchestra. We're the middle school band. Do you know the difference? You go to the London Symphony Orchestra, someone messes up, you're like, oh, I want my money back. This is horrendous. You go to see the middle school band, and they're playing Auld Lang Syne. You're like, yeah, there's a couple big myths in that one. But man, no one has the parts down perfectly. We're the family of God. We're not the theater of God. So to bring this home, let me address worship leaders. This is a song for worship leaders. Psalm 84 is written by those who served in the temple worship. And so I think worship leaders should have three things. This is kind of a bonus. Worship leaders should have a deep desire to serve God and to bring him glory. So should every Christian. We should desire to serve God and to give him glory. Secondly, worship leaders should have a deep dependence upon God as they seek him. So should every Christian. A deep desire to uh, rely upon him, depend upon him, and seek him. And thirdly, worship leaders should have a deep demonstration of humility and servant leadership as they lead God's people, and so should every Christian. We should demonstrate what it means to be a doorkeeper in God's house uh, rather than dwell in the tents of the wicked. As we close, do you long for God's presence like a deer panting for water? Maybe you're in a dry or tear-filled valley. Maybe you're camping out there, uh, but I want to encourage you to pass through there. Let's go ahead and close our Bibles. I'm going to invite the worship team forward. This morning, we need to know that God's presence is greater than something you can squeeze into a cathedral. And yet Jesus sent, God sent Jesus to be the word made flesh, to tabernacle and dwell among us. God sent Jesus because you and I trusted in our own power to save. The sons of Korah had an ancestor who rebelled against God and perished. And like 
our ancestor Adam, we too joined in this rebellion. We may have lived, but one day like Adam and like Korah, we will spiritually die. And God knew this, so he sent Jesus to live a physical life and die in our place. Jesus wasn't confined uh, to a specific realm like the temple, but he did confine himself to a body. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law of God to the letter. And he didn't stay dead. As we sang earlier, God raised him from the dead, and he forever conquered sin and death. By placing your faith in him, you can go from death to life. And be with Jesus today and in heaven and eternity. You can experience the presence of God through the Holy Spirit now and forever. For all of us, I want us to remember one day in the presence of God, we can even seek to draw near to God, to seek to be in his presence. May we keep Jesus who tabernacles among us at the center of our witness, of our worship, and of our waiting. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is sufficient, that it's in Christ alone that we have the privilege of being here, uh, meeting with the people of God. And Lord, we don't want to underemphasize the fact that you're among us. We don't want to overemphasize and try to look for uh, an emotion or an experience. We just trust that you are faithful uh, to give us all that we need. And so we trust you today. We love you. We worship you. It's in Christ's name that God's people together said, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.